if, as I see as reasonable, workers uh, should be allowed to combine to present to employers their wishes, their preferences, that seems entirely reasonable. But at the same time, it's quite possible that these combinations of workers can accumulate so much power as to, as to have great costs on society. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelter, the Joseph Douglas Green, 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is John Pincavel, who is Levin Professor of Economics Emeritus at Stanford University. He is renowned for his work in labor economics and especially for his study of wages, labor supply, and trade union behavior. John, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thank you. Uh, let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in West London. Interesting. Where, where did you go to school? Well, um, I, I grew up on a what in England is called a council estate and what in America is called public housing. Uh, so uh, this was a... Um, uh, a council estate that was um, on the edge of London, and um, at that time on the edge, London has, has got bigger. I, I was born at the end of the well, 1943, and it was within the area that was bombed during the Second World War. In fact, uh, about a few months after I was born, at the end of the road, uh, a V1 rocket fell and blew in all the doors and windows uh, of our house. My father had built within the house uh, a little air raid shelter, but it was best, uh, it, it was most effective in preventing things falling down. And I was told, I was a baby, but I was told that I was covered in glass. And yet uh, my mother said it was a miracle that I was... Uh, not scratched or cut or anything. Anyway, the when the war ended, I went to an infant school and then to a junior school, um, and then to the surprise of my teachers, I passed what was then called the eleven plus exam, and went to a grammar school. All of those schools were in work or in, in walking distance of home, although for. The grammar school I could uh, I often cycle to to school, so I thought I was very fortunate in having schooling so accessible to me. What did your dad do? He was a warehouse uh, transport manager uh, for a firm. He 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 was laid off a number of times, but um, many of those firms were actually American firms. He had. Pulled himself up pretty much. It's a longer story, but he left school at 13 years old to look after, to help finance his mother, 
his father having been damaged in the First World War, and his first job was office boy. He was told, make yourself useful. He then uh, pulled himself up and became, uh, as I say, a transport manager for firms directing their products uh, all over um, Britain. It sounds more highfalutin than, than it was. Yeah, but it's a working class background. Uh, That's I, right. I actually had a student who listened to some of these podcasts say to me, I guess all labor economists didn't grow up on the Upper East Side. No. <laughs> it sounds like you didn't grow up on the Upper East Side by any oh, means. Oh, far from it. The vast majority of our neighbors were people from the east end of London that were uh, whose whose houses were destroyed during the war. So um, most were East Enders. Um, and then, uh, well... <laughs> there was a famous television show called that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that, So these were good, hardworking people, but not well-educated and certainly not, um, not wealthy. I can still remember the rent man coming around collecting the, our rent. Amazing. What Now, how I know you went to University College, very elite place, and in fact, nowadays, probably even better known in economics yes. than it was when you went there. How did you end up there? At that time, and maybe still today, when you apply to university, you don't apply to the university, you apply to a department in the university. And I wanted to go to university as my sister had um, before me, and um, I wasn't sure. I wanted to go to university, but I was not sure to what department I should apply. In other words, I was very keen on economics, and I was also very keen on history. So I actually applied to a number of department to two departments uh, at uh, various universities. Uh, I was actually also offered places in both history departments and economics departments, and I'm I believe I'm fortunate to have chosen uh, economics. That's interesting. Uh, but how did University College, London? Why was that your choice? One reason is that my economics teacher at grammar school had been there, and he mm. encouraged it. And we, we all had interviews before you, you were accepted at uh, one of these departments. And I was very impressed by the um, interviewers, uh, my, the, profe- the the academic staff at University College. So um, that's how I went there. And what did you then commute from your house? Where did you live? Um, in my first year, I did commute from the house, but it really was quite taxing because um, Hanwell, where I grew up, is uh, uh, well, actually, he doesn't have an underground station. Um, uh, and I had to take the bus and take the underground. So I found uh, afterwards, in my second and third years, uh, I found um, accommodation, just a short bus ride uh, from the college uh, up in Camden Town. My last year, I, I've actually got into a... Um, uh, what is called what a dormitory, uh, uh, student lodgings, um, in just walking distance from the college. Now you were obviously very successful at University College, uh, London. Was there someone especially influential? Because you ended up then uh, as a graduate student at Princeton with a very distinguished fellowship. How did that happen? Well, um, 
my tutor at University College was a man called John Sprouse. He was, his background was Greek. He was an excellent economist. He had advised Greek, he has advised the Greek government, and he was an excellent teacher. He used to hand his notes over to us, and they were just, they, uh, we, we used to say they should be published. Um, so he was an excellent economist and also a, a very good advisor. After three years uh, of my undergraduate education, uh, University College, as had uh, London School of Economics down the road, uh, instituted a one-year master's degree. And he encouraged that I do that, and I did. His specialty actually was uh, international economics uh, and foreign exchange rates. Um, anyway, he, while doing that master's degree, he said to me, well, what are you going to do next year? And I said, well, I, I don't know. And he said, um, <laughs> well, look, a lot of good economics these days is being done in America. Why don't you go visit America. Well, I I was will, very willing to adopt that, but I didn't know how to go about it. So I I wrote to the American Embassy. Uh, and you, they you sent, wrote to the American Embassy? Yeah, in London. <laughs> and, um, well, they sent me forms. Uh, well, one applied to MIT, one applied to Yale, and one applied to Princeton. I don't recall one for Harvard. And I was asked to go to an interview and the interview, to my surprise, oh, well, I, I didn't interpret it as very meaningful, but uh, I was asked, um, well, if you were offered a place uh, at Yale uh, or Princeton, which would you choose? Well, <laughs> I hadn't really thought of that. I, I didn't I think that I was likely to go to either. So I hadn't really prepared for that question. However, um, I, I didn't want to say that. It looked, um, I don't think it would burnish my appearance to say I hadn't looked into it. So I said, oh, Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and indeed, I was offered uh, this um, Jane Eliza Proctor Fellowship uh, for one year at Princeton. And then I took a, a, a ship um, <laughs> from Southampton to New York um, which I was sick most of the time, um, and, uh, to to New York and ended up at Princeton. It was only a one-year fellowship, but um, the economics department in Princeton was very um, accommodating, and they um, supported me for three years. How did you get into labor economics? When I got to Princeton, I found labor a very appealing field. Appealing because... Um, it seemed to combine some basic theoretical work with some uh, and, and attempts to apply it. And it was that combination of a framework, a way of thinking about labor, the way labor markets operate, um, and the attempt to apply that theory, I found that very, uh, very um, appealing. And, and, of course, the person at that time, um, there were several people, but the person that I took my first labor economics class uh, from was Al Reese. 
And Al uh, combined these qualities. He was very interested in applications uh, of economics to labor markets. And um, what, what, what did they say? After that, it's all history. It, it, it was Al Reese more than anybody else. And the way he taught and the way he taught the subject uh, that was um, very influential. His name has come up many times in these podcasts, by the way, and the connection to Chicago uh, as well. So there's a kind of an interesting, in some ways, you're not so different from quite a few other people. Now, yeah, I know your dissertation, uh, I remember it well, but let me ask you about that. How did you come to, that work now, of course, seems kind of modern, not the, not necessarily the empirical work, but the idea of it seems quite modern. How did, how did what was it about? Well, it was about labor turnover. Well, uh, a man called Arthur Ross had written a paper uh, some, uh, previously called uh, um, Industrial Feudalism in the Labor Market. The Balkanization of Labor Markets, isn't that what he was thinking about, right? Well, he was suggesting that the growth of fringe benefits attached workers more closely uh, to firms and discouraged labor mobility across firms. But this was more conjecture than fact. And so uh, I I tried to write a dissertation using voluntary labor turnover as a test of whether over time uh, the labor labor markets in America had, had declined because of the growth of supplements to wages. What did you conclude? There, there was little evidence for such a decline, and that um, and that the model describing these movements sort of characterized the labor market in in a somewhat naive uh, manner. It's interesting. I, you know, it's a kind of a modern question too, because uh, mo- many people have pointed to. I don't know if it's true in the industrial sector, but Many people have pointed to uh, declines in mobility across areas in the U.S. Do you yes. think that may have changed? Geographic mobility does appear to have declined. Um, I don't know that uh, um, evidence that firm-to-firm movement has declined. It may be along with geographic mobility, it has. But the notion that, uh, I, that was in the thesis was uh, that... Um, Firms weren't wage takers, they were wage makers. In other words, that they had some influence over the wage that um, it could offer firms, uh, excuse me, offer workers, and that um, uh, therefore this turnover was something that firms could influence by manipulating wages. That's interesting. And of course, that's that's now... I think a more common view of the labor market because after the time that you wrote for many decades, people kept thinking of uh, firms as wage takers. And I think probably that's, that's evolved to something different. Now you, you left Princeton and then uh, went to Stanford. Yes. And you've been there ever since. Yes. Is it the weather? (laughs) Well, not this year. (laughs) No, they've been very good to me. I mean, when I, when I first arrived, I had a visa that permitted 18 months of what they called uh, professional training. So my expectation was that I'd be here for 18 months. 
when I mentioned this to some administrators at at Stanford, they said, "Well, let's see what if we could do anything about that." And basically, uh, they got around that um, uh, restriction. Uh, to this day, I don't know exactly what strings they pulled, but um, so uh, that requirement it was a very important change because. For the first uh, year, my mindset was one that, uh, oh, in a year's time or two years' time, I'll be back in uh, in England. Um, and after that, uh, I began to think more seriously about a, a longer-term appointment at Stanford. Uh, that, that was a very important uh, step, that um, uh, getting rid of that visa problem. You're very well known for a paper uh, I think it's probably still people look at it, which is a very, very serious survey of labor supply behavior, uh, primarily for males. You put a huge amount of energy into that. I wonder why. Well, I did find uh, that topic and that literature very interesting. It was indeed um, the dominant model was one uh, that form it, it, it was it's a simple extension of the demand for commodities that consumers uh, might have and it was an extension to take into account the demand for non-work time and so it satisfied the first um, feature of labor economics that appeals to me a a well thought out um, model, a well-thought-out framework of thinking about problems. Uh, and then there was, what had grown was an empirical literature um, investigating the uh, relationships between uh, work um, uh, uh, su- supply, the supply of work, uh, and wages and uh, other variables. So it was exactly what uh, 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 appears to be in labor economics a, a melding of theory and empirical work. And and some of the results from that uh, survey uh, were very influential, I think. What would you say were the primary, what did you learn mainly from it? I was uh, Somebody else was uh, going to write, Mark Killingsworth, I think, was going to write a paper on that focused on uh, the supply of women to work um, mine was focusing on the supply of men to work. Um, I did come to the conclusion that um, the response of men uh, in their work to um, the key variables was much less responsive than many had believed. So, for example, most of the estimates uh, when sort of arranged and organized, most of the estimates suggested that uh, when real wages change um, for men, the response of men in terms of whether they work or not and whether they're going to work more or fewer hours was pretty small, that a great deal of effort um, had been applied to a relationship that I think is uh, is that the male's work behavior is not very responsive to changes in wages. I think that was the conclusion many people understood that you drew, and it was controversial, at least in part because uh, 
lots of people interested in tax reforms like to believe that they'll pay for themselves. Yes. And, and the implication of your work was that that was not, not likely at all. That's exactly correct. Yeah. So I think it was important. I, I, I do want to ask you, we'll, we'll get to trade unions in a second, but because we're talking about labor supply, I know that you were involved in the Seattle-Denver income maintenance experiments. And I, I, we have not, no one has discussed those in the podcast we've talked about so far. And I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what those were like. Uh, that many people don't realize that uh, the use of field experiments in economics far predates uh, what has been done in the last uh, decade or two, where some people seem to think that they were started in the last decade or two, whereas these income maintenance experiments existed many, many decades ago. What, yes. what was your involvement with them? I joined the, the research uh, in the early 1970s, I think it was. There had already been experiments in New Jersey, I think, and uh, maybe in Pennsylvania, and there were to be more experience, uh, experiments in, in Gary, uh, North Carolina, as I recall. But the Seattle and Denver income maintenance experiments were, I think, Syme Dime, they were called, were um, the largest at that point of these experiments. And in effect, just like uh, um, uh, uh, perhaps some medical experiments, that um, families, households were selected and placed into two different bins, controls and experimentals. The experimentals were given different budget constraints, uh, while the controls did not face new budget constraints, though they were interviewed uh, regularly about their, their work. And the idea was to um, do what is nowadays called difference in difference models. They uh, compared the labor supply behavior, the work behavior of households uh, before the experiment, their work behavior after the experiment. These experiments lasted um, three years or five years. Some were told, in fact, they, they'll be on a 20-year experiment. Though I don't think that was uh, actually materialized. Um, so that one difference was the difference of the same household uh, in one period from another. And the other comparison, the other difference was the difference between the controlled households and the experimental households. And, and it was very expensive, of course, um, but um, it, it collected a huge amount of data that I know that um, uh, people, are st uh, economists, are still using to this day. I had a student, in fact, he I think he visited Princeton for a while, David uh, Price, was it? And um, he used those data to look at some long-run responses to these experiments. What did, now, you wrote a paper about some of this. What did, what were you, I've forgotten what it was. What did you do? Well, I did uh, several things. Well, one thing I did was a few people, uh, quite fairly, questioned whether there was much eva tax evasion. These negative income tax experiments 
were designed to change the budget constraints of workers. And some suggested that the the participants were able to avoid these t taxes or changes in their uh, incomes and wages. Uh, and so one thing I did was to try and determine whether uh, that was the case. Um, I, I didn't think it was, in fact. I, I think it was a, it, it was fairly well uh, executed, these experiments. And so that, that concern, uh, I, I, it'll be bold to say there was no such evasion, but I don't think that they that there was such such an amount of evasion as to vitiate uh, the results. I know you wrote several papers, uh, or at least participated in the writing of several papers that came out of that experiment. Is there one one result from the experiments or from that experiment that strikes you as the most important? Well, again, I thought that um, women may be much more responsive to changes in their uh, work environment and, and their budgets, and their wages and their uh, non-wage income and taxes um, than men. But men, again, were pretty unresponsive. So that, um, again, I, I would think that um, the, the, in general, uh, the experiments that I was involved in suggested that it were confirmed what the non-experimental literature that uh, men were uh, the workers, men workers, their hours of work and how much they, um, whether or not they work, uh, were pretty unresponsive to changes in their wages and their non-wage income. Very. I'm glad you. I'm glad you talked a little bit about that. I think we should turn to your work on trade unions. I, you've spent a long time thinking about trade unions, and I know a special topic you like is uh, worker cooperatives. Uh, in fact, I remember a paper about plywood cooperatives uh, uh, in particular. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you uh, should know that. That's right. <laughs> uh, and, and there's a book, of course, uh, papers as well, uh, about trade union behavior. I'm not sure exactly, you know, it's a big topic, and uh, but I'm curious what, what, what it was your motivation first in, in spending so much time in studying both worker cooperatives and, and trade unions? Perhaps because of my background, I've had, I would say, some prior, what should Peter called pre-analytic vision. I had some, that is, before any analysis, uh, some sympathy for workers. They tend to be uh, first of all, had lower incomes than employers or the owners of um, uh, or, or of firms. So I, that sympathy translates into well, why shouldn't there be organisations that represent their interests, and therefore some device uh, to allow uh, workers to combine and presenting their uh, work preferences to employers. So in that sense, I think trade unions present a very interesting problem for society because if, as I see as reasonable, workers uh, should be allowed to combine to present to employers their wishes, their preferences, 
that seems entirely reasonable. But at the same time, it's quite possible that these combinations of workers can accumulate so much power as to as to have great costs on society. Uh, like any other organizations that accumulate a lot of power, they could be beneficial and they can also damage things in society. So I've always found that that balance to be an interesting one and finding that balance um, is not easy. I got particularly interested in trade unions in the 1970s because uh, the 1970s was a particular turbulent time for trade unions in Britain. Indeed, in 1979, there was a, a general election that um, uh, in, in which there was held while strikes uh, of, of dustmen, garbage workers, resulted in London being uh, inundated with garbage <laughs> left on the streets. And, uh, and the election turned on, well, what, one election in the 1970s, the line was, who governs Britain? At that, in that election, the voters said, trade unions. <laughs> but then in 1979, uh, with uh, Margaret Thatcher, they t- changed and voted for a government that was going to tame the power. I mean, these unions were indeed, the ones that caused costs to society uh, were public sector unions that um, were there were monopolists of labor the coal miners the steel workers the garbage workers they were all unionized as required by their by the codes of nationalization the public sectors that were nationalized by the labor party labor government after the second world war their, their founding uh, codes required them to recognize and bargain with their trade unions it was a classic bilateral monopoly. Monopolists were created, monopolists in the product, their product markets, uh, and they bargained with uh, a single uh, union. And it was a classic bilateral monopoly. And uh, with, I mean, this harks back to back to Edgeworth and uh, who who was the. Uh, writer in the 1920s who wrote about Bowley, Arthur Bowley, wrote uh, about a lovely paper in the 1920s about bilateral monopoly. And he's... It's, in fact, it's called the Bowley-Edgeworth empty box. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So that was an example of trade unions accumulating, in my view, where the costs of, of bargaining were felt not by the employer, uh, neither by the workers uh, the, the being um, whose wages were being negotiated, but the general public. And what was needed was some mechanism by which uh, this damage to society could be uh, reduced. You know, we're coming to the end of our, our podcast. There's one final question I'd be curious uh, about that I think others may be too. There are now some uh, nascent efforts to unionize American workers in a few areas. Not, no, I wouldn't say it's a, a great deal of unionization effort going on, but there's some. What, what's your view of that? 
like uh, the unionization of Amazon, Starbucks, etc. My sympathies pretty much are with the workers and the unions that uh, Amazon has accumulated. There is a monopolist, virtual monopolist, and certainly has market market power. And and in dealing with its workers, it can set wages w- with little constraint. I think the, the market takes um, their market prices. Uh, are taken as given, and they impress that upon their workers. So I, I think that it's going to be difficult for unions to regain what they once had. But I sympathise with the effort, but I, I'm not confident that it will succeed beyond a, a, a few areas. John, that's uh, okay. That's excellent. Uh, I think it's it's good to have your view about that. Not everybody likes to speak about that topic, but I think it's very nice that you did it. It's been a great pleasure to have you here today. Uh, our guest today has been John Pincabel, Levin Professor of Economics Emeritus at Stanford University. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.